Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And as we look this morning, we see uh, a time of confessing devotion and faithfulness to the Lord among the people of Judah. You know, there are certain principles that we find in the scriptures that even the secular world recognizes are good things. They don't recognize they come from the scriptures. They they don't know that. But it's interesting, even in the secular world, we see this. Uh, There was an article I came across some time ago that's titled, Make a Public Commitment to Your Goals and Work Toward Them Every Day. And it was written by a psychologist in the workplace, Dr. Tom Muha. And this is what he said, to be successful... Studies show that after writing down an action plan, it's essential to share it with others. Publicly committing to pursuing positive outcomes is far more powerful than simply dreaming about doing something. What we see all the way back in the time of Nehemiah is the people of God coming to the Lord, meeting together to come before the Lord and to write down their commitment to him, and then everyone to actually make a public display demonstrating that this is what they were doing and making this covenant with one another and with God that they would be faithful to it. They assembled together, and they had a written document saying that they would be faithful to the Lord in submitting to his word. And the passage details all the actions that took place in order to accomplish this pledge. And as we look this morning, there are two, two things I would like us to notice. There are two sections to this passage. And again, I'm sure many of you are aware of this, that the, the numbering in our Bible sometimes doesn't match the original sectioning of the scriptures before numbers ever were put into them. And so it actually, the passage begins with verse 38 in chapter 9, and then goes through the end of chapter 10. So we're going to look at verses 38 through 29 and see who made this solemn commitment to God. And then the next section, verses 30 through 39, we're going to look at what was their solemn commitment to God. So let's look at verse 38 first. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now, it's interesting that this begins with the the statement, now because of all this. And so this goes back, actually, to everything that happened in at least chapters 8 and 9 coming to this occasion. And in chapter 8, if you'll remember with me, the people of God gathered together. They had a platform built up. They had a podium set up. And Ezra, the priest, read the word of God to the people of God. All who could understand were there, men and women, children, boys and girls, all were there who could understand and listened attentively to the reading of God's word. When they heard God's word for the first time after a very long time, they began to weep, and they recognized their sin and and their 
They're being in disobedience and rebellion against God. And yet uh, their leaders, Nehemiah and Ezra and the others, told them not to weep, but to rejoice, because this would be a time of celebration that God is a forgiving God and God is ready to work among his people, and they were ready to obey. And so right away, they began to celebrate the Feast of Booths, which was by the law supposed to be celebrated at that time, which shows they were ready to act upon God's word. And so all of this took place. And then we see as they continue in chapter 9 that they gathered again for the reading of God's word and they listened to the reading of God's word for six hours. And then six hours after that, they bowed down, they prayed and confessed and bowed down before God in confession of sin and the worship of the Lord. And so now, as they come together at the end of these things, now because of all this, as we see here in verse 38, they are gathered together and they have a signed document that they are all signing to to say, we are going to be faithful to keeping God's word. We're going to be faithful to the Lord and do what he has called us to do. Now, why such a public display? I think for one thing, it was a message that was sent not just to the people there, but to the nations around them. If you remember in the first part of the book, there was a great deal of opposition by the peoples surrounding Judah, trying to stop Nehemiah, even attempting to kill Nehemiah, and to put a stop to this revitalization, this reformation that was taking place among the people of God. And so we see here that they gather together publicly to say, we are going to serve the Lord, and we are going to be faithful to this. And they wanted the nations to recognize this, I believe. Another aspect of it is the public nature of a binding agreement because it invites accountability, not just to God, but to one another. It emphasized the corporate commitment of the people of God. It's interesting, in the church today, and I shouldn't just say today, as far back as I can remember, which goes back uh, about 50 years uh, that I can remember this from when I became a believer, And that is we put a great deal of emphasis on the personal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And we use that expression, uh, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, it is personal, but let's understand this, that your relationship to Christ and my relationship to Christ is no more personal than anyone else's relationship to Christ if they are saved by grace through faith in him, that it's personal for each and every one of us. But what happens if we're not careful when we use that language, at least in my experience, is and and, uh, there have been times when I was a young man, I kind of had this kind of thinking. That is, I have my personal relationship with God. It's me and Jesus. And yes, there are all these other people, and I guess they can come along with us if they want to. But it's, it's me and him, and we're doing this thing. And it's all about us. And when we look in the scriptures, there's a whole lot less emphasis on 
the personal one-on-one relationship with Christ. And there is a great deal of emphasis on the corporate nature of the people of God's relationship to Christ, the church, and the people of God in the Old Testament with the Lord and their covenant with him. And it's much more a concern about the people of God, us as a community joined together as the people of God, as the body of Christ, there's much more emphasis on that than there is on just my personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And a part of that, as we look in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see that there is an accountability that comes with being a part of the people of God, with having this corporate relationship with one another that we are bound together, that we are the body of Christ, that we are all parts of one body with Christ as the head. And so we need to understand that we need to be accountable, that God expects us to be accountable, not only to him, but to one another. And that's where the rub is for a great many of us. Because it's okay for many of us for us to hear what the Bible says and to listen to its instruction. But don't go meddling and start trying to hold me accountable to these things. That's just between me and Jesus because of my personal relationship with him. No, 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 no. What it is, it's either ignorance of the scriptures or it's just actually just saying, I'm not gonna listen to the scriptures when we don't recognize the teaching of an accountability that the people of God have to one another as much as we have to the Lord himself. And this is what they understood here. They were embracing accountability. And it is interesting as well that when we are accountable to one another, it is then that we begin to experience true spiritual growths, growth in our spiritual, personal spiritual lives. And it's when we do not allow ourselves to be accountable to one another that we begin to dry up. And so it is important for us to recognize this. The people understood their accountability to the leaders, to one another, and to God. Now, you may think of your pastor's and elder's responsibilities. You've just called a a new pastor who who is coming, and I'm sure you're praying for him. But what can be the tendency in churches is to think about everything that you're expecting him to do. When in truth, we need to be as a people in our churches and here at Fisherville as this church needs to be thinking about what are my responsibilities and how am I accountable to my pastors and my elders and the leaders in this church and to one another? What are they to expect of you? And so as we, I remember the last church that I pastored when I went in for that first interview, they spent two hours peppering me with all these questions. It's fun, isn't it? But... um, peppering me with all these questions. 
And then they got done. They, said, they looked at each other and said, do you have any more questions? Do you have any more questions? They said, no, no, I don't think so. And so they started it up. I said, oh, wait a minute. I've got some questions. And I said, what is your responsibility here? What is your understanding of the church and what you're to be about? And what is, what is it that God wants you to be doing? And what are you doing? And then I started asking them, what are you doing in the work of evangelism? What are you doing in missions? What are you doing in discipleship? And it's like, wait, 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 we weren't prepared for all this. Yeah, you weren't, because you were ready to pepper me, which is fine, because you need to know where I am. You need to be where you need to be as well, though. In the church, we are accountable to one another. And this is what they understood as the people of God in Nehemiah's day. And so there are, we begin this with a list of um, just the names of all those who signed this agreement. Now, you notice my wife is not with me today. She got um, a vaccine yesterday, and uh, she got a fever last night, and it, she thinks it broke this morning. Um, it was just in good time where she didn't have to hear me preach one more time. <laughs> Um, it was perfect timing with that. But anyhow, no, she's just not feeling well. But I went into our kitchen. I left her alone in the bed. She was sleeping. And um, I was reading this passage, and I, I like to read out loud because I like to hear what I'm reading as I read. And so I'm reading, and uh, I had to tone it down because she kept saying, what? what? What are you saying here? And I was reading through all these names, and uh, I thought it better that we just not go through that again um, this morning. But let me talk about these names and talk about the significance of these names. What we see here is a list of those who make this commitment, and it begins in verse 1 with the national leadership. Now, I will read this. Now, on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and, and Zedekiah. Well, who are these people? Well, Nehemiah we've been introduced to, and he is the governor of the region of Judah. And the Persian king, Artaxerxes, had put him into this position of power. And so he is the one in charge. The only person he answers to is the king. And then we have Zechariah, or Zedekiah, rather. And Zedekiah was Nehemiah's right-hand administrator that worked alongside him and saw that things got done. And so these two prominent leaders are the first on the list. And what we see here is that this is not only a testament to Nehemiah's organizational skills, but it is a testament to his commitment to the things of God. And that while we may look at his job as a secular position that he had, what Nehemiah saw was a divine appointment by God to lead the people of God to do what God had called them to do and to encourage the spiritual leaders to take that lead and do that as well. I wonder this morning where you may work, what your job is. And you may see it kind of as we might see Nehemiah's job as a, as a secular job. 
But do you realize that God is directing the paths and ways of his children? And while you may think of it as some random job that you just fell into, from God's point of view, it is a divine appointment for you to be an ambassador for Christ wherever you are. And what would happen in your life if your understanding of your job turned from it being just a place to accomplish whatever you're going about to accomplish or to sell whatever you're trying to sell or, or, or whatever it is that you do on your job, to think of it as the place that God has led you that, so that you would be a light in that place to others, that you might be a representative and ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ in your workplace, and that it is certainly a divine appointment by him. And that's what Nehemiah did. And it is something that people of God who are serious about the lordship of Christ and are called to service, that's the kind of thinking that those kind of people have, just like Nehemiah had. Who else signed the religious leadership? And we see this in verses 2 through 13. We see in verses 2 through 8, for instance, the priests. And there were at least 15 ancestral families of priests who participated in this solemn occasion, which makes sense. The priests were the spiritual leaders of the people, And behind Nehemiah, they were the next in line to sign and to show that, yes, they are making this public commitment. They are not calling the people to do something that they themselves were not willing to do themselves. They were setting the standard and living it before the people. Of course, you know that I teach at... uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I'm in my 21st year there. I've taught students at Boyce College. I've taught at the seminary as well. And also, just growing up in a Southern Baptist church, a sizable Southern Baptist church, I saw a great many people come through there who were called to full-time Christian ministry of, of one sort or another. One of the things that's always amazed me well, two things. One is the amazement of the commitment that so many of these students have made to God's calling upon their lives and the joy of witnessing that. But there are those, a very small minority, but yet those who I've seen over the years who fail to realize this concept when it comes to preparing for ministry that they need to take the lead in their commitment to Christ within the church. And I have seen, as a pastor, for instance, people in Bible college and and seminary students who will not do anything in the church. There's no place, they they have no idea that, that they should serve they have no concept of this. I've been amazed at, at some of these that, that I know personally who never gave a dime 
to the church, much less what I would think a tithe would be the minimum. And the New Testament says generosity, which means, in my thinking, more than a tithe, actually. But they wouldn't give anything to the church. And I've often thought, and, and, and I do have this sin nature in me. You figured that out as well, um, listening to me over this time. But I've often thought, I wonder what's going to happen when they get up in the church and they start preaching and telling people that they need to be generous in their giving. How can they even look at themselves in the mirror and not be faithful in giving and serving and doing the work of ministry while they're in the church preparing for leadership in the church? How can they look at themselves when they get up before the church and they call the people to do the things that they were unwilling to do? Those who are in leadership need to be servants. And it doesn't start when you're a leader. It starts when you come to Christ and being faithful to these things. And, and the, the priests gave this example. Now, <clears throat> it, it's interesting. Sometimes we can have this idea do, in the home, <clears throat> do as I say, not as I do. How does that work in parenting? Not so well, usually. And yet, sometimes we can have this in the church as well. And spiritual leaders should not ask the congregation to do anything more than what they themselves would be willing to do. Now, understand me. It's not the leader's jobs to do everything. It's the leader's jobs to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That's their job, to equip people for ministry. But I think back to when I... Uh, was 23, 24 years old. I went to a church and really was a church planter. And I stayed there eight and a half years before I came back to Louisville to come back to school. But um, it, to take you even further back, when I was eight years old, something like that, I remember my dad being a pastor. It was, we'd stayed after church longer than anybody else, which was not uncommon. And um, dad told me, he said, I want you to go down to is the completely other end of the campus where the children's wing was. He said, I want you to go down there, make sure every light is off, and uh, make sure that the doors are shut. And um, I went and did it and came back and got in the car. And I remember I was sitting in the back seat. And dad said to me, did you, did you check on everything? I said, yes, even though I am not the janitor of this church. It's one of those moments, again, that kind of blurred after that a little bit. I mean, um, I remember his eyes in the mirror. And, uh, you know, this is that time of year where you see red eyes and glowing eyes on TV and things. I saw him in person right there in that mirror. And um, I will tell you, that's the last time I ever said anything about anything like that, ever. And then the Lord has a sense of humor when I'm this church planter. I tell you what, I really literally did everything. You say literally everything? Yes, with the cleaning and all that. Now, I had some help. There were people in the church as we grew that helped with this. But I also was the pianist, I was the song leader, 
And so it was wonderful. I'd sit there and play, and we'd get done and say, okay, right here I am. And then I, I just moved from here to here, and I, okay, let's, let's preach. And um, I didn't complain. I was reminded of that eight-year-old boy who made that statement, but I also realized that my job was to equip people to do the work of ministry and that it wasn't the TJ show. So I was willing because I had to. But let's understand that the body of Christ is about every person being involved, being involved in the ministry and the work of service in the church. And the main job of your pastors, your elders is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so that implies that the saints then have work to do in the ministry. And so it is important to set that standard and to understand that and to recognize that. And so these priests do this. And, and the next group of, of religious leaders, the Levites, we see this in verses 9 through 13. And the Levites were kind of associates to the priests. They helped uh, take care of uh, the, the work that needed to be done to, for instance, to carry the tabernacle, to take care of all the things in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, and, and so on. And so they, they were ser serving alongside the priests, helping them do the work that they needed to do. And sometimes, as we see in Nehemiah and later on in their history, they involved themselves even in teaching and, and instruction when there were not enough priests to do that themselves. And then we see the local leadership in verses 14 through 27. These are the lay leaders. They signed and they committed publicly the same thing that Nehemiah committed the same thing that the priests committed, the same thing that the Levites committed, these lay leaders, these, this local leadership, they pledged to sign and keep this solemn oath to the Lord as well. And then in verses 28 through 29, we see the rest of the people, and let's pick up there. Look at verse 28. Now the rest of, of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants... And all those who had separated them from the peoples of the, themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes." Every child, every adult who could understand and who had separated themselves from the surrounding peoples in order to obey God's word, joined their leaders in making this solemn oath to carefully live by God's law. If you go back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, it sounds very similar to what the people of God did at that time. And we see that... True repentance and true commitment and devotion to the Lord is centered around the word of God. And they gave themselves to God's word. In our vernacular, separating themselves 
from the nations is living for Christ and being separated from this world. It's being in the world and not of it, as John speaks of in 1 John 2. It means conforming to the will of God that he has communicated to us through the scriptures. It means obedience to the word and conforming to Christ. It means that God's word shapes who we are and what we do. The participants in the ceremony recognized that knowing who the source of the law was and knowing its contents was not sufficient. True repentance and a true commitment, demonstration before the people and before God, that's what it called on. See, knowing God's word is well and good. But knowing God's word and carefully submitting one's life to it in obedience is what counts. And in fact, a person who thinks he knows the word but lives in disobedience to it really doesn't know the word of God at all. It's interesting to me, true knowledge of God's word comes through submissive obedience to it. Say, where do you get that? Well, I just happen to get that from Hosea. Because Hosea the prophet made it very clear, he he preached in his day that the people in his day had no knowledge of God because they were unfaithful and had no true love for God. And because of their unfaithfulness and lack of faithful love to God, they didn't know him. And so what we see here, these people were committed. They were committed to being held accountable. They were committed to promising that they would do what God had called them to do. And they did this by also putting a curse upon themselves. They say that they have put themselves under this curse should they fail to fulfill the solemn oath to, to quote them, walk in God's law, to keep and observe the commandments of God, our Lord. This is just like the covenant that God made with his people in Deuteronomy. Because it involved blessing and curse. And so they understood that. And they said, we embrace that. We want to be held accountable. And we want for God to discipline us even if we are found unfaithful to this commitment that we've made. Because that's how serious we are about our commitment to God. And so this is where they were. Well, what was their solemn commitment to God? Verses 30 through 39. In verse 30, we see they promised to submit to God in their family activities. Look at verse 30. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. True commitment to the Lord will be reflected in the home. This is purported in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 5 and following, if you, or you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm, which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. If these Judeans 
were going to faithfully remain separated from the nations, then it meant that their children would, on, would only marry Israelites and not foreigners as taught in the law. And we talked about this last week. This was not racially motivated, but it is spiritually motivated. And we see examples where outsiders, non-Israelites, were brought into the people of faith. Two prominent names, which are in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, are both Rahab and Ruth. My favorite book in the whole Old Testament is the book of Ruth. And what a wonderful, godly lady she was. But she, how many times in that little bitty book, I think it's about 88 verses, something like that, in four chapters, in that small book, how many times does it call her Ruth the Moabitess? Ruth the Moabitess. And when you're reading it, like, I get it. She's a Moabitess. Okay. But why does it keep saying this? It keeps saying it because she's not an Israelite. She's not an Israelite. But you know what she was? She was a woman of faith and the one true God, the Lord, and she was brought in by grace and redeemed into the people of God. She was an outsider brought in, but her faith was in the Lord. This is not racially motivated. And we looked at this last week, but it bears repetition this week. In 2 Corinthians six fourteen, the apostle Paul wrote these words, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Intermarriage led to the idolatry that led to the exile that the people were in in the first place, and still dealing with the ramifications of all of that. And so the message is, we're not going to repeat that again. We are going to be faithful to God's word, and we are not going to intermingle with unbelievers in this way. Also, they promised to submit to God in their business activities. Look at verse 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exact, exact, exaction, there it is, of every debt. Here's what we see here. The people are making this oath saying that when foreigners come into our city on the Sabbath to sell, we're not going to buy from them. We are not going to treat it like a day that is not the Sabbath that's holy unto the Lord. And while we're not selling, we're not going to be buying from them as well. Now, what, what's the point here with this? What they're saying here is that we are going to be faithful to God's law. And a sign of the covenant, it's interesting, we look in the Old Testament and most people that know something about the Old Testament know that circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Do you realize Exodus in chapter 20, also in chapter 31, points to the Sabbath as a sign of the covenant? And as a sign of the covenant, what it was, it was showing their commitment to the Lord. And in this case, it was showing their commitment to the Lord to the nations. And do you realize up to this point, we don't know of any other people group in the ancient Near East that had a Sabbath. 
only the people of God. And why? It was to be a witness that we trust in him. You're working to make money seven days a week. Our God has told us not to. And you know what? He's going to bless us even when we don't work that seventh day. And we're trusting in him. And so this was their commitment to be faithful to his, his law. Now, people ask, well, how, how are we to understand this in, in the New Testament? I understand the writer of Hebrews teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. And we have an eternal rest in Christ. And it's interesting, all nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated except one. And what is that one? To keep the Sabbath. And so people ask me, are you a Sabbatarian? Well, I know what they mean, but I'll say yes, because Jesus is my Sabbath. I walk and rest every day in Christ, and he is my eternal rest. And so we, the New Testament brings a new understanding to that. So as we look at this, what we're seeing, though, is their commitment to God's law in that old covenant to be faithful to what God had given them to do. And they were willing to do that, although it was very difficult for them from a, how should I say, a secular mindset to do. And then, finally, they promised to submit to God in their religious activities. And we see this in verses 32 and 39. And just to summarize, what did they, what did they commit to do? First of all, they committed to financially support the work of the house of God. Notice, we also place in verse 32, we also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offering to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. And so they committed to financially support the work of the house of God. They, they accepted this responsibility upon themselves. It is a shining example for believers today to be mindful and responsible and generously give to the needs of the church to carry out the work of the gospel and to build up the church and make disciples. And they said, we commit to this. This is what God has called us to do. And it is important for us to be giving in this way. It's interesting. Um, I see uh, being in the church my entire life, I've seen some pastors preach about money a lot, and then I've seen others react to that and not preach about it much at all, if any. And what happens, I think, is if you preach the word of God, when it comes, you address it. And what we see here is that the people of God, it's understood, the people of God that are committed to God are going to be giving financially to the work of God so that it can go out. And we see this commitment that they made. And um, I think about people get upset. They say all they're doing is talking about money all the time. I, I think about my dad growing up in Arkansas. 
um, or he, they call it rack and sack sometimes, just to think they were funny. I don't know. But anyhow, um, in Arkansas, he'd say this. He'd say, um, you know, it's just like in the church when you preach about money, if it makes someone mad, he says, it's just like throwing a rock into uh, a bunch of chickens. The one that gets hit is the one that's squawking. And um, that's what happens in the church as well. But if you're giving and you're faithful, this is no big deal. It's just what you do. And it's a joy to do it. It's a privilege to do it. And this is what they did. This is a sign of revival, a sign of a true reformation that takes place among the people of God. Secondly, they not only financially supported the work of the house of God, they committed to financially support the workers in the house of God. And they, they say in verse 38, the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites. And when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the house, for the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. They are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. See, when people are serious about serving the Lord, they'll be serious about supporting the work of the Lord, both with the church and also the servants who lead within the church. And let me tell you, you will never owe God, or rather, God will never owe you anything. You cannot outgive the Lord. And if you take care of his servants, you will be blessed in that. I believe, isn't it interesting? The Lord Jesus himself, he, he, he comes out and he says, you test me in this, in your giving. You test me. You give, and it shall be given back to you. And that's the place he says, you have a problem with that? Test me in it and find out. And so this is what they did. And uh, I'm glad to be preaching this, first of all, because it's God's word. And secondly, I'm not your pastor. <laughs> so this isn't affecting my wallet one bit. But I call you for yourself, for your blessing. I remember, I was taught this. I'm glad I was as a kid. Because if, I, I could imagine my, my parents were not taught this. And they were adults, and I think dad was actually a deacon in the church before they started tithing because they got into a church that taught it because they'd never been taught to give. And, uh, but when I came along, it's just a part of what we did. And so I got um, 75 cents a day was my lunch at school, and mom and dad gave me a dollar every day to buy my lunch. So I had a quarter, and I would make sure at the end of that week, I tithed on that because it was like, I don't know, you do the math, uh, of it, um, $5.50. Two quarters went to my offering. Now, it wasn't a big amount, but I remember this. In January, the church sent out those contribution records, and I never got mail, and one day, mom said, hey, you got, you got a letter here. I'm like, What? 
I got a letter? Somebody said, and it looked real official. You know, it's kind of like a business type of thing. Like, what is this? I opened it up. I don't know how much I did. Do 50 time, 52 times 50 cents. What's that? $26. There it is. Thank you. I, I am a math major, so I was able to do that. Thanks. $26. There it is. And I looked at that, and I'm like, yeah. Man, I'm, I'm, the church is going to make it with this, isn't it? I mean, I was like, man, I've really done something here. $26? That's ridiculous. I was so And I wasn't bragging. I was joyful that I could give and be a part of that. And there's joy in giving to the Lord's work because we love him. And we want the work to be done. And so it's a great joy and privilege for us to do that. I'm so thankful to my parents that they taught me this as a kid. And I haven't outgrown it yet. Still, each year, Ann and I will get together and we'll think, now we give this much to missions, these mission efforts. Maybe we could bump it up just a little bit more this year and see, see what God can, God's doing with us and see, see how that will work for us. And, it's just, and I'm not saying this to, to try to brag to you. And many of you, you're probably never going to see me again after three weeks, you know? And you may not see me after this week. So I've heard enough of this already. <laughs> but it is a joy. Well, let me close. I just want to give you some words here that, that describe the commitment they made. First of all, personal. It's a personal commitment they made to God and to one another. It was public. It was on display for every... It wasn't to put on a show. It was to say that we're committed and we're not ashamed of it. And we're going to keep this commitment. It was practical. It wasn't theoretical. They, they did some real things to see to it that it happened. It was a powerful commitment. It had an impact on the whole community as they made this commitment. It was proper. It was the right thing for them to do. I think about, again, my dad. He had just a, just a straightforward kind of logic. I'll never forget many times as I was a young man, he'd say, you need to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Well, there you go. How can you argue with that? Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That's what they did. It was proper. It was the right thing for them to do as the people of God. It was principled. It was based on the principles of God's word. And finally, it was prudent. It just made sense. Because how can you not give to the things of God? How can you not commit yourself to God's word? when it is the word of life, when there is blessing and obedience and service and in the wonder of our Savior. It's prudent. It just makes sense. Let me finish with three questions. How, how does your commitment to Christ impact the life of your home? How does, how does your commitment to Christ impact the, the life of your home? How you talk to one another, how you, how you approach God's word, how your family is in the car as you're driving to church on a Sunday morning. How does it impact the life of your home? How does your commitment to Christ impact, impact your business practices and your job? And finally, how does your, your commitment to Christ impact your relationship to supporting the work of the ministry of the church. For these people, in Nehemiah's day, 
It impacted everything within their home, within their business dealings, and within their relationship to the work of the ministry in that day. And it will do the same thing for the people of God today who make such a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these people and the example that they have given us of what it looks like to be committed to you. And Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the life that we have in him. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And Father, I pray that we would demonstrate this kind of love and commitment to you, to the glory of Jesus Christ, that we might be a light to the nations, that it might impact our homes, our businesses, and that the life of your church would be blessed and that it would multiply as your people generously, joyfully, devotedly serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.